Thank you, ladies. I am thankful, too, that our faith is built on the rock of Jesus Christ, and we're here to worship him today. I have some announcements. You can see a lot of them in the bulletin, but I have two that aren't in the bulletin, but Fall Fellowship at the Nelsons. You missed out to be a judge, so you snooze, you lose, but we have three good judges. There's no youth choir practice today. You can see that we have a, a lunch followed by a business meeting coming up very soon, and I won't mention John Layton going away because I don't want Catherine to cry too early, so I won't mention anything about that. We welcome two new members. Yeah, two new members. I can read. Three new members. <laughs> Angela Sewell, Jesse, and Brant Cochran. So you know who they are. If not, find them. But we have special service going on today where we have our regular morning. Then we have our fellowship luncheon. But at 1.30, we're going to come back here for baptism and communion. And I'd like everybody to come back. So you ladies that hang back and like to clean up, just leave everything. Come on over. Uh, we can go back to the fellowship hall afterwards for another cup of coffee and, and dessert. So I'll probably flick the lights and start getting everybody moved over. It'll be a short service, our pastor says. So, so um, but come on back over and see an incredibly... Uh, beautiful baptism and then gathering around the Lord's table where we can worship our Lord. Thank you, Andy. Yes, this will be a great time. And particularly note here we're going to preach through Hebrews uh, chapter 9 today, not the entire chapter, but it, it does mention something about ordinances and of the new covenant, and these are the two that are featured, and we'll be experiencing both of them today, and what a great blessing that is. I want to thank for uh, everyone for allowing me some time off and to have some uh, rest and so forth, and for Paul for filling in. You did a great job, but thank you. Really appreciate it, and folks as well for your prayers and your support. Well, there will be that day, for sure. But, but unfortunately, you have me today. But we will have lunch afterwards. So you don't have to run home and get lunch. One of my favorite psalms is, as we prepare to worship Christ is from Psalm 100. And let me just read it for you and, and let's listen together and then go to the Lord to prepare our hearts to Make a joyful noise to the Lord. This, this is a call for all the earth. To serve the Lord with gladness. To come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you praising your holy name. 
We do desire to have a joyful heart, recognizing indeed who you are. You have called us to your name, to, to know you, and in so doing, we can come into your presence with great joy and respond in song. I pray that you would indeed hear the, the words of our heart as expressed in great thankfulness of who you are, all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you have promised. Give us great faith in you, regardless of whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in this day or days to come. We know that you are God, and so we give thanks to you, and we bless your holy name. Indeed, there is only one perfect good, and that is you. And so I'm thankful that you have revealed yourself to your saints and that your love, your mercy, your grace, your faithfulness, it endures. And so I pray, Father, that we would be continually satisfied in you and find our holy rest in you and you alone. May your name be praised this day and all days to come, and may you call many sons and daughters to praise your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was struck this week by some words by Scott Aniel and the folks at uh, G3. And they said, the people of God sing. From the earliest days in both testaments, God's people sing as an expression of worship. Miriam and Moses, David and Asaph, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus and Paul. They all sang their praise to God. Indeed, from cover to cover, the scriptures command such heartfelt responses of the affections of believing people. Singing praise to God is the natural response of those who adore their maker. But singing is also the commanded duty of all God's people in all eras of his dealing with humankind. Singing is one of the ways we fulfill the chief end for which God made us, to glorify and enjoy him. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand and let's sing this morning. And what a great hymn to start out with. And the Come Christians Join to Sing, number 32.
singing to God is a most sacred thing. The words of the epistle of Hebrews surely applies as much to singing as they do to any other aspect of worship in Christ's assembly. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. This command excludes from our worship any expression of song or prayer that is untrue or unworthy of the God who is overall and blessed forever. Let's turn to number 82 and let's sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. The Lord will guide you always. Isaiah 58, 11. We sing to the Father, thrice holy and forever blessed. We sing to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us. We sing to the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to us to dwell in our hearts, making us God's holy temple. We have an obligation to sing to God in a manner that is worthy of who he is, and that exemplifies the expressions of reverence and joy found throughout the Holy Scripture. This means that our singing must sound very different from popular music concerts and carnival tunes. While Augustine believed church music is a good way to raise the affections of worshipers, he warned in his confessions, quote, When it happens to me that the music moves me more than the subject of the song, I confess myself to commit a sin deserving punishment. John Wesley says in the preface of his 1780 hymn book that he sought to purge the hymnal of all doggerel, bombastic, and words without meaning. A.W. Tozer lamented the popular religious music of a generation ago. Quote, Many of our popular songs and choruses in praise of Christ are hollow and unconvincing. Singing the truth, and we must sing only what is true, means we sing what is true doctrinally with expressions worthy of the eternal God. 
Let's take our inserts out and let's sing something that's doctrinal, <laughs> as we have all morning. And that is Credo. It's based on the Apostles' Creed. The girls will play through it once for us, and kind of it's, it's a new tune. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll go through it once, and then we'll try to sing all four verses, and maybe by the fourth verse we'll have it down. So. <laughs>
worship folder, I've written this Apostles' Creed in a revised manner. If you'll take your copy with you from the front of your worship folder, let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you. I will continue our reading through the book of Acts this morning. We'll be in chapter 18. We'll read verses uh, 1 through 17 of chapter 18. And if you're reading along in the Pew Bible, that is page 927. We all just read through um, the Apostles' Creed and stated verbally the, these facts that we believe. And every chance that I get to stand up here and read God's Word to you, it's just a humbling experience and, and it drives me to praise that we have this Word, that God Amen. gave this to us to change our hearts and to remind us often of the ways that he has blessed mankind, the ways that he has blessed his people, and the ways that he's blessed each one of us individually. Uh, in, in verse 6, mo most of this is, is it's a historical account. You'll see different people going different places and doing different things, but at the end of verse 6, Paul says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And... Anytime I read of that in, in the text, this grace of God where he moved from the Jew only also to the Gentiles, that, uh, that's me, that's us, that's each one of us, um, the ways that he's blessed us individually when the word went also to the Gentiles, we were able to be saved through that, and I praise God for that. Amen. Read along with me, if you will as Paul goes to Corinth in chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you this morning for, for another day of life, for the air that we breathe, the, the sun that shines on us, all these many blessings that we often forget to be praiseful for, but we do praise you today, and we ask uh, as we continue in song and worship that our, our focus, our minds, our hearts would be on Christ, would be on his work uh, in the heart of sinners and, and, and his work of making believers of us all. And, I ask your uh, blessing on our time of study that, uh, that in, in the word that you have for us today would be uh, something that would uh, edify us all, build us up. And, and if there's anyone uh, amongst us today who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that, um, that even now the Holy Spirit would work in their heart and change them and, and, uh, and, and cause them to see Christ for who he is, which is Lord of all. And God, I, I pray for each one of us. Um, that as we go about our lives, as we go about in the world, we would remember uh, what was told to Paul um, in this chapter uh, to continue to speak, uh, to speak this word that you've given us, uh, to speak it, to live it, to show it. And, um, and God, we just pray for a blessing uh, over our time here today. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.
Please stand once more and take your hymn books. And please turn to 306. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The banner of the cross. morning, I invite you to turn to a new chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This is another perspective on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and if I were to organize it in some form or fashion to, to make it really simple... The book of Hebrews is essentially a sermon pointing out the supremacy and the excellency of Jesus Christ. The preacher does so in the first six chapters, roughly, by emphasizing the very person of Jesus Christ, who he is. He's God incarnate, creator and sustainer of all. 
there were there all that came before could not compare to Christ. Anyone who might come afterwards cannot compare to Christ. He is supreme. Spend six chapters doing so. He said, well, that's great that he's supreme. What about it? Well, the emphasis then in the overarching emphasis in the book of Hebrews, uh, emphasizing the supremacy of Christ, is to point to his intercession with man. An intercessor between God and man. And that focuses on his priesthood. If you remember chapter 7, we discussed that. Only a divine mediator, a mediator that is God and man, can mediate that circumstance. And it is indeed Christ, who is a priest, not temporary, but a priest forever and ever. A priest today, an intercessor now. Chapter 8 is where we last left off on and spent some time discussing the promise that is fulfilled by this person, this priest, Jesus Christ, and we call it the New Covenant. It is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So chapter 8 then concludes, if you look at verse 13, he's talking about a new covenant. A new covenant that is fulfilled by Christ. And by doing so, verse 13 of chapter 8, it, it then it makes the first one obsolete. He's talking about the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, the law. And what is becoming obsolete, he says, and growing old is ready to vanish away. Historically, where this sits, this message, I'm not sure precisely when it was given, but it's written down somewhere in the mid 60s AD 64 to 5 in that range prior to the temple being destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. It fulfills then what is being said here ready to ready to vanish away in a prophetic sense. Judaism in the way it, it was prescribed in under the old covenant which it, there's a, a ream of pages concerning that, and we'll touch on that in, in a bit, but it could no longer then be practiced in the way it was prescribed. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. It has vanished away, A.D. 70. It could no longer be practiced. There's not going to be anything to go to to his Jewish audience that he's speaking to because it's going to be gone. This is a warning. A warning to them and a warning to us as well to go to any other source other than Jesus Christ. Remember, he warned them in chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. Anything other than Christ is leading you away from the living God. So one of the questions that I had in looking then in chapter 9 as it goes through all of these details of the Old Covenant, to some degree in any case, and certainly when we look at the Bible, and if you've ever split it apart, this is the Old Testament, and this is the New. You 
See the difference in the size? You know it. And I always struggled when I would go to try to read through the Bible in a year and say, well, <laughs> you really get bogged down in some of those early chapters, particularly when you get to the book of Leviticus. And you've had that issue as well, I'm sure. I mean, you read the Gospels and you fly through it. You, you're reading Acts and wow. And then all the epistles that, that are given that have direct application, that those are uh, understandable and we spend much time there as we, we should. But, but what, do we, what do we do with this old covenant that, that is ready to vanish away and has been replaced by the, the new covenant? Well, some... And I would call them, I'm not trying to be pejorative, but just trying to be clear, I would call them culturally liberal preachers. Culturally liberal in the sense that individualistically they they would grab a hold of the influence of the culture and the mind of man rather than God. They would like us to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because if you're, you're reading through there, you're going to find some difficult things. So a lot of things that are hard to understand. And many things that you might think, well, that doesn't have any really, any practical application to me. The, the moral standards that are given are very black and white. And the penalty for violation is severe. And it's not something we experience in our culture, which is colored with lukewarm shades of gray. But this was not the apostles' perspective. The Old Testament is the Bible that they actually preach. When we're reading through the book of Acts, this is what they're using. This is what they're communicating. Paul is preaching Christ and him crucified from the what we would call the Old Testament, this half. The Bereans, who who are going to be commended for their searching the Scripture to to receiving what Paul has said gladly and then examining them to, to find out those truths that were there all the time, they're commended. It is these Scriptures this that permeate this message of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you want to proclaim anything, if you want to preach and teach anything, here's a good idea. Preach the word. They did. You've already noticed it in our study through the book of Hebrews. It's just constantly referring to this part, the Old Testament. That's what they had. Because here I'll give you the clue because I probably won't get through all this. You gave me too much time to prepare. All of this communicates Christ. That's where it goes to. And it's almost like, you know, you see this beautiful edifice and you can enjoy the, 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 how lovely a building might be constructed, but there has to be a deep foundation for the bigger the, and more glorious structure that is there. And by understanding the fundamental structure and how things are put together, it makes what is seen even more glorious. 
the principles taught in all of Scripture are transcultural. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter the language you speak, it doesn't matter the place that you live. It also transcends time. That they were true in, in Genesis, and it's going to be true in the very end in Revelation. It, it doesn't change with time. It can't change with time because God can't change, and this is God's word. Isaiah put it this way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, it will stand forever. Jesus put it this way. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Apostle Paul taught his young protege, Timothy, who would follow in his steps. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he would say that all Scripture, oh yeah, that part too, all of it, he, he's writing this part, this part, and he's saying that part, and, and all that God would ordain as his word, all of it is breathed out by God. And furthermore, not only is it his very breath of God, beyond that, it is profitable for teaching. What's profitable? Just this here? No, all of it is profitable. All of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. This is why we pray the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We sing the scriptures. It's permeated in our life. We meditate on the scriptures. And we even wake up from anesthesia, I heard, quoting the scriptures. What a joy. And I pray I would as well. So what did we do then with all this material? This volume of material that prescribes in great detail this old covenant since it's passing away. In general, I would say that, and I'll just try to simplify this the best I can, we can learn vicariously that is, through the experiences of somebody else, historical people. These are real people that did real things in real time. And you can learn by your own experiences, or you can learn by the experiences of others. These lessons, then, that are communicated can certainly be applied to many circumstances. Paul would tell the church in Romans chapter 15... Whatever was written in the former days was written for, and he's speaking to the church, by the way, okay, under the new covenant. Whatever was written was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He would tell the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us. It was written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So specifically then, what do we do? In general, that's true. But specifically, what do we do with all these details concerning the ceremonial worship and the rituals concerning Judaism, which was vanishing and passing away and has? Well, the preacher of Hebrews explains in verse 9 of our chapter, chapter 9, 9, that in describing some of these elements of the tabernacle, which he's going to do, he reminds us, and I want you to note that, that these are, note this, symbolic for the present age. So, so here is something historical, specifically, the tabernacle, and it functions as a symbol. We'll get into the symbol. I think you already know the symbol, since the whole theme is the supremacy of Christ. It's symbolic, if you will, for now, for the present age. These details, and they're very detailed in the construction of the tabernacle, as he chooses to discuss, they were prescribed in that way to function as a portrait of Christ, that you would see Christ. We, we call those types in the Bible, theologically, and of course the fulfillment would be the anti-type. It is Christ. It is a picture of Christ. A.W. Pink puts it this way, in connecting link between the closing verses of chapter 8 and the opening verses of chapter 9, we may perhaps be set forth thus. Although the old covenant or mosaic economy was ready to vanish away, nevertheless it yields, even for Christians, important and valuable teaching. Here's a summary. It is full of the most blessed typical import, the record of which has been preserved both for the glory of its author, number one, and number two, for the edification and joy of his saints. Wonderful indeed were the pictorial foreshadowings which the Lord gave in the days of Israel's kindergarten. The importance of them was more than hinted at by God when he took but six days to make heaven and earth and spent less, no less than 40 days when instructing Moses concerning the making of the tabernacle. That clearly denoted that the work of redemptive grace, which was prefigured in Jehovah's earthly dwelling place, was far more glorious than the work of creation. I think he's right. And that's a, that's a profound way to think about it. The work of redemptive grace. Why are they just two chapters on creation? Not that it isn't glorious, it is. It's incredible. 
And then you have all these chapters on this making of the tabernacle in, in, in Exodus and what they're to do about it. And all of these details, pages after pages, because they speak of the redemptive grace that is in Christ that is even more glorious than the creation of the entire world. Do, do you see the beauty of creation Some of you have traveled and seen various sites and have been impressed by just the physical beauty of of a lot of things. It doesn't compare to the beauty of the redemptiveness that is in Christ Jesus alone. And for that, you should have great joy in song and great hope and courage in life. think we'll go on and say thereby we we are taught to look away from the things that are seen and fix our minds and affections upon the sphere where the son of god reigns in light and love I, i think it's a good summary of what this is about and what it's calling us to do it's not that it's an easy look and an easy consideration there's a certain veiling in our own minds and flesh, and certainly those that are outside of Christ are totally blind to it. But the degree that you look and look closer and through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, you'll see a brighter glory, and particularly of Christ, even in the difficulty of imagining this edifice, the tabernacle that has long vanished away continues and remains a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let's read in its context in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The preacher says, and this is on the heels of saying, the old covenant is going to vanish away. But he says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's key. Earthly place of holiness. We'll get to that. For a tent was prepared, the first section in in which there was a lampstand and the table of bread of of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper. 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation, which is now. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you give us insight into your holy word. More than anything, we would see Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. This section here, by the way, that I've carved off, and we'll address it in a, a time or two, but I do want you to note that it is marked off by this word regulation. See verses 1 and verse 10. Your translation may say ordinance. It's similar. Th- these are regulations, if you will, prescribed for worship and in particular in the earthly place a place of holiness and Blake thanks for sharing with us much as you went through our hymns today I I didn't know precisely what you were going to do but you know God does (laughs) and it fits very well with what I would want to communicate today one of the issues and you can see it right here Regulations for worship. God prescribed how he was to be worshipped then and now. And if you look through the details of this tabernacle, he didn't leave anything to chance. He didn't say, oh, just build something, some certain size and shape. No, it was very specific. And if you've read through the Old Testament Canon, reaching really all the way back to Cain and, 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 will, and Abel, we'll, we'll get to them in Hebrews chapter 11, by the way. God had determined how he was to be worshipped and communicated it. Yes, different in different dispensations or economies or times, certainly, but always regulated by God. The time of Abraham, the time of Moses, the prophets, the kings. And in those times, in the Old Testament, you'll find many people who just decided to circumvent that and do it their own way. It didn't work out really well for them. Okay? Again, you you can learn a lot by somebody else's experiences, so you don't have to. They paid dearly for their disobedience. We don't worship God according to our own imagination then or now. This divine instruction that was given isn't just for that economy. Yes, there are specific things that have vanished away, but that principle still exists. You say, does it exist in the New Testament time? Yes. You remember a couple who decided to give and lie about it? You see, giving is an act of worship. Why would we give anyway? Because we're responding to God's bounty towards us, and so we give towards him from a cheerful heart, Scripture would say, in in that way. Not out of obligation, but we do it from the heart. And we don't do it to look good. And, And to let others know, well, how excellent we are in that. Well, in Acts chapter 5... We read about Ananias and Sapphira. 
and they're lying about their giving. They didn't have to, but they just wanted to look good in the church. And God doesn't always do this, but in their case, and this is the new covenant, by the way, he struck them dead. So great fear came upon the whole church, Acts 5.11, and upon all who have heard of these things. And great fear should come upon us, again, to examine our own hearts and our own motives. We'll have communion in a bit. And again, this isn't to um, put you in abject uh, panic or fear. It's to cause you to reverently come to Christ, as we'll look, because he offers cleansing and atonement. But if you remember, we'll often read this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about this ordinance that God has given under the new covenant. When Christ says, take these two elements in remembrance of me, Paul addresses the church at Corinth who were making a a whole sham about the whole situation. And he would say in 11.29 of 1 Corinthians, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning his body, in other words, examining his own heart, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Then 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 he concludes with this, verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some who died. Now, don't extrapolate that to think that everybody that's weak, ill, and died (laughs) violated this charge. That's not the point. The point is simply this. You don't take communion any way you want to. You don't worship God any way you want to. We, We just don't devise our own way to go about doing these things. We do this with great reverence and fear and awe. And, and how is it, how do we know some of that? Well, certainly it, there are prescriptions in the New Testament beyond that. All of this Old Testament tells us who God is and how uh, careful and important every aspect of who he is and how he is to be worshipped. God is a holy God. We, we, we are called to reverence him. We don't gather together to to engage in some entertainment. You you could stay home for that. You could go pay money to some amusement park and and get a lot better entertainment than you can here. We, We gather together when we worship to gather together as prescribed to focus on the glory of God the beauty of who, who he is. Now back to Hebrews 9, and notice verse 1 again. He throws in this statement, even the first covenant. Even the first covenant. Th- this refers to, he, he had just talked about the, the new covenant in chapter 8, and now he says he goes back and says, even this first covenant. It's lesser than the new covenant. It's something that has been replaced. Well, even that one had regulations for worship. Detailed rituals which were purposely prescribed. And why were they purposely described? Ultimately to portray the glory of God through Jesus Christ in a symbolic way in a material way so that you can recognize these 
immaterial truths so that you can even teach the children what these rituals and practices and experiences are. We'll have two ordinances, two rituals, if you will, two regulations that we'll both experience today. Why? Bring your kids. Show them what it means to be immersed in Christ symbolically through the waters of baptism. Show it what it means to have your sins atoned for by receiving the, the bread and the cup. That's what these are, to do this in remembrance of him. This passage here, even this first covenant, has this. Obviously, the, 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 the new covenant would as well, would have regulations for worship. But notice here in the text, it also says that this is then put together, he's speaking of the first covenant, as an earthly place of holiness. This earthly idea is meant to contrast what is implied, and that is heavenly. The, the earthly is temporary. It isn't necessarily bad, but it isn't perfection. The new covenant implied, the heavenly, is from the one that is from above, the scripture says, Christ, who is above and descends. These are aspects of the new covenant. This earthly was, was temporary and meant to portray that which is permanent and that which is actual. In doing so, it draws a portrait of Christ as a holy God. And I just lament in some degree some, not all, but some of the practices of worship. I, I'm, it's more of a, a grieving thing to see the silliness and the frivolity, the truth purposely mixed with error. Much of it is as blasphemous as the golden calf in Aaron's day. Some lessons are just never learned. But it is an expression of God's merciful patience who doesn't send forth serp fiery serpents even this day. The preacher of Hebrews here is attempting to show the glory and supremacy of Christ. It's certainly over everything, and in their particular case, certainly over Judaism. So, so why would they go back to that? Now, as we've read through the supremacy of Christ as it's tracked through the first eight chapters, he doesn't make any disparaging remarks about Abraham, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and others. God specifically ordained them to carry out a specific ministry. But we know, because it's recorded in God's word, and they knew, because of their experience, that these men were flawed. Nevertheless, they accomplished much for God. They did so by his grace. They did so by his divine enablement. It was their 
in spite of their personal weaknesses, that God was able to bring about faithful men. And on that, they are commended. But as good as they were, and as they are revered, particularly in their culture, that glory that they might have attained pales in comparison to the brilliance of Jesus Christ. You can't even see it. It would be like, and, and this even wouldn't be dramatic enough, but all I can grab, a pen like compared to the sun. Christ is superior to all that came before and all that can be imagined after. The preacher reminds the people of that through the symbolisms that they are very familiar with. This verse 9. Tangible ways in which they could get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. So, by the way, if if you want to know, well, how, how did... The apostles run around and teach Christ from, from all of that. Well, I'll, I'll just give you a glimpse of it myself. And that is the te- the, every aspect of it, I said, speaks of Christ. And the, te- and the tabernacle is a, is a beautiful portrait. That's where he's focusing and where we should as well. J. Vernon McGee wrote a little book. I can't remember the title, but I grabbed it phrase from it, passage from it, concerning the tabernacle. And he puts it this way. I I like how he worded this. God wrote systematic theology. You know, systematic theology, that's like topical theology. He wrote systematic theology in the very warp and woof of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was theology pre-written. The whole gamut of theology was to run from Dan to Beersheba. The tabernacle is the ABCs of salvation for babes in Christ. All the great doctrines of Christian faith are contained therein. All is anticipatory preparation for the day when the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. See Revelation 21.3. Therefore, the tabernacle is the finest portrait of Christ and of his redemption there is in the Old Testament. God sent a picture before he sent a person. The tabernacle is God's picture book. For babes in Christ. I think he's right. I'm going to look at a few elements of the tabernacle. Some are mentioned here in our text. Some are, are known, and, and I'll explain. But I do want to give you one word of caution on then going down that path of understanding and the, the tabernacle and, and interpreting it and seeing its relationship to Christ. We need to be cautious when we do this not to make more of what we see than what we actually know. Oftentimes, some of the details that are surrounding it, and they are very detailed, 
and each one has a significance for sure. We, we may not know the fullness of the significance of each detail, but they are woven together to produce a whole. They communicate a significant truth. So, so I'm saying at times, don't, don't jump down to the very thread. See why all the threads are there and all the prescriptions are there. It might be more helpful. We're also guided by the repetition of it and the uh, recognition of it by the New Testament authors. They, they help us to, to know what indeed that, that meant in the type. So let's look at the first one here in verse 2. It gives this general statement, a tent was prepared. Well, that's the tabernacle. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a tent. Now, when, when he says this, a tent was prepared, I'm in 9-2, they know exactly what it is and what it looks like, and it's now in concrete in Jerusalem, if you will, okay? It's physically established. But this tabernacle was a temporary place of worship. It was a place that was constructed in the time of the Jewish wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And it serves as a symbol of God's presence. Now, Blake, I think we really got together on all of this. We didn't. Blake chooses the songs, and um, I have no idea what I'm going to preach, so um, it, it's kind of hard to coordinate. But, but the Lord helps us out on occasion. And when I saw this, when guide me, O thou great Jehovah, do, do you remember singing that? Through, through this pil- pilgrim? Through this barren land, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. He, he goes on to talk about, the, let the fire and the cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer. And, and where is he going to lead? On, on Canaan's side, the promised land. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. That hymn is trying to communicate the summary of what we're saying in the, in the symbolism that is portrayed by the Jews in this journey. Egypt is alluded to as a place of bondage. The wilderness is the time between being freed from bondage of sin to all the circumstances of life until you get to where the promised land with God. The tabernacle here was with them in the wilderness during their journey. God was with them the whole time. That's the point. It it serves as a symbol for God's people of all time. And if you come to Christ, you're going to be freed from sin. 
imaged as slavery, as bondage. But you will go through a period of your life in this life with great difficulty. Peter calls the saints pilgrims and sojourners, if you will, until a time in which you are in the full presence of God, represented by the very promised land. This tent, it says, it was prepared. It reminded the people in the midst of their journey that God had not left them. It wasn't that God just freed them as waiting on the other side. He was with them. This tabernacle, by the way, when they set it up, it was set up right in the midst of their camp, in the middle. Which, by the way, if you look at old uh, settlements, particularly in America, Jamestown, for example, you know what's right in the middle of Jamestown? Church. That's the first thing they built. To remind them, to at least think about the idea that God is with them. This unique structure reminded them that a transcendent and holy God would be with his people. That they could indeed uniquely have fellowship and communion with him. That fellowship and communion wasn't with the Egyptians. Not not ethnicity, that's not what he's talking about. It's talking about what they represent nor was it with the people who would be ousted in Canaan. It was with those who represented God's people. God was with them. And that's necessary, that God be with us. is what we have been designed to have all along. That's why human beings are social, by the way. And to be antisocial is, is not a good thing. We naturally want to congregate and have fellowship and be with one another to some degree until we irritate one another. (laughs) Then we might not, but then we want to make up and get back together. All of that points to the real relationship that we all long for, and that is our perfect communion with God himself, fellowship with him. That was broken by man's rebellion. Remember in the garden? God created mankind. He created mankind uniquely in his own image so that a transcendent God could communicate with a creature and have fellowship with him, uniquely made than any other creature. That fellowship was broken by a rebellion against him. But God promised, even in the curse, he promised redemption. You can see it in Genesis 3.15. He promised to restore that fellowship because that was his plan all the time. He would crush the head of Satan by bruising the heel of his son, born of a woman. In the Abrahamic covenant, God calls out a people for his own name so that All nations, all ethnicities would be blessed in him. That is fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. Under the Mosaic covenant, this relationship that God is with us 
is experienced symbolically through this tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 6, he would say, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God dwells in the midst of his people in this tabernacle. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on a few places in the Old Testament. Uh, you can either turn or you can um, just jot it down. Or as you're going through your reading next time through the Old Testament, maybe these facts will um, help to color your understanding of the truth that is portrayed here in the Old Testament. In this dwelling, this tent that was built, in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34, it begins this way. Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whether the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they didn't set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It symbolically pointed to the fact that God was with them and God would lead them and instruct them when to go and when to stay. So what does this tabernacle do specifically? This tent in verse 2 of Hebrews 9. A description of it is found in Exodus 27. If you want to look or I'll read part of it for you. The tabernacle was meticulously designed. And when he says the tent, they know what the tent is. It's, it's a structure that is consisting of two main parts, an outer court and an inner court or tent. The outer court is an area that is enclosed by a curtain, if you will, made up of linen, supported by wooden pillars. So you might think of that outer part as a tent that is a fence. It's a rectangle. In Exodus 27, here's some description of it just to give you an idea in the scriptures. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine linen, twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. And its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and the fillets shall be of silver. Likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings, 100 cubits long, its pillars 20, and their bases 20 of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. For the breadth of the court, the wet side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits and 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front shall to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hanging 
On one side of the gate shall be 50 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side of the hanging shall be 15 cubits, and with their three pillars, three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and, tw and fine twined linen. Embroidered with needlework, it shall cover four pillars and with them four bases. And all the pillars around the court shall be fitted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and breadth 50 and the height 5 with hangings of fine, of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. He's a little specific, wasn't he? <laughs> And, and, and I understand, you can get lost in that. And if we continue to read, and you read all of it, um, it's a lot. And, and we don't measure in the way they might have measured then. We know it in general. And that's the bigger picture that you should get out of it and what it might have looked like. A courtyard, if you will, made of fine linen, pure, rectangular in shape. Pink puts it this way when he looks at it. Its fine linen hangings spoke of Christ meeting the claims of God's righteousness and holiness. Its 60 pillars tell of the strength and power of Christ who is indeed mighty to save. The dimensions of the court we would estimate are about 150 feet by 75. But I think the bigger thing, rather than get into the minutiae of each aspect, is to see the bigger picture. Nothing was left to chance, was it? It was all prescribed. Th this is why it took so long for God to tell Moses what to do. Because there, there is nothing left to chance. Everything is precisely formed and precisely fitted together. They even had to carry it f when they unpacked it and packed it up and set it up. They had to do all of that in specific ways. They had certain people that were involved in it. They had to carry things in certain ways. You can go on and on and on, and you're saying, hey, this is very specific. But we don't have the tabernacle, so why do we need to know? Again, it points to a bigger picture. As you'll see time and time by the time you get to the Gospels, where it is only Jesus and Jesus alone who fulfills every single messianic prophecy down to the last detail. Nothing was left for chance. Not even the day when he walks into Jerusalem. It was on a specific day. Everything about it. And it, if you look then at the, at the picture beyond all the specifics that are given, that points to Christ, and, and this is what the, the Bereans were looking at to see if these things line up, if they're so. Yes, they all line up perfectly. You know, you could give some sort of general prophetic idea of who might win the presidency, and, and maybe you'll have, by the time they get down to two, you'll have a 50-50 chance. Right? But when you go page after page and ream after ream about all the specifics of who Christ is, th there isn't any chance it would be any other. And if you miss Christ, you've missed the boat completely. It's already sailed. 
this height that's mentioned here, it would have been about seven and a half feet tall. That would have created a barrier blocking the inner court, blocking those inner tents, this surrounding area. It points to God's uniqueness and his holiness. You you, you just don't stumble into God. And And there is a certain uniqueness about him, a certain wall, if you will, that you just can't peek in. Remember Isaiah's vision of who God is? He looks at the throne of God. He gets a vision, and he sees these angelic beings surrounded the very throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of what? His glory. All that is glorious, all that you might see, only reflect and point to the one who actually is, that is God. The holy just simply means to be a cut above, that is perfection, and it includes separation. God is separate and God is distinct. He is uniquely holy, and that is the defining attribute of who he actually is. It would be true to say God is love, but not God is love, love, love. No, God is holy love. God is holy in his faithfulness. He is holy in his mercy. Every one of his attributes can be characterized as holy, that is, a cup cut above, and a certain distinction and separation, a wall in that sense. When John gets a vision in Revelation chapter 4 of that same throne room, this time he sees that one who is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. And what is his response to that? What does he hear those creatures saying around that throne who is Christ on the throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is coming. And he'll end his revelation with even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what it's to point to of who God is. All those living creatures in Revelation 4, they they all bow down. And those that are the 24 elders representing the church also bow down, and they cast their crowns before him and saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and your God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Isn't that how Hebrews 1 starts out about the person of Christ who creates all and sustains all? So how are you going to cross that barrier? How do you cross, cross that wall of separation of a holy God? Did you remember in our text that little statement about a, a gate? <laughs> you know, there was only one entrance into that tent into that 
holy place. There was a single entrance. It was a door. 30 feet wide is how we can measure it. It's pretty big. It's sufficiently big enough for a crowd to come on in. It'll accommodate all who want to enter. And now this reminds us then that imagery. When Christ tells his people that he is the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And he does so by making this statement in John 10, 9. He says, I am the door. That's why it was so big. It was so beautiful. I mean, it's beyond big. They didn't need a 30-foot wide door. They didn't need all this decoration and color. All the rest was white around it in the fence. But you can't miss the door. And it wasn't some little small entrance. It was huge. And anyone, and if anyone enters by me, he will go in and come out and find pasture. They pointed to Christ all along, who is indeed the door of life, the only entrance into God's presence, into his holiness. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, to remind his disciples before he left, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The tabernacle points to God and his holiness, and the way to have communion and fellowship with him is through a single door, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, how will you get into that door and what will happen? We'll talk about that next week. There's two objects in there. The brazen altar and the bronze laver. I suggest you might want to do a little prep for next week. It's just as glorious. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for the fact that you would bother with men and women like us. We, we, we have unclean lips. And, and we would be destroyed in, in your presence because of our sin, but because of your grace, you will provide cleansing from all our sin. And so I pray for myself and your people that we would be ever thankful and joyful for the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, for the, for the cleansing that is provided by Christ in Christ alone. And I pray, Father, that we would increasingly desire to be in your presence both this day and days to come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to just reflect personally on these things. If you have anything to confess, don't confess to me. Confess to the Lord. He is waiting and willing to hear from each of you. Take a private moment now.
truth that is in your word, I pray it would be something that we cherish in our heart and causes our hope to increase in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you can't play Holy Holy without singing it, so I think we'll do so. What do you think? What number are you on? 68. And uh, let's rise together and sing in worship to Christ today. 68. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for the many blessings you've given to us, Lord, in, the, in showing us throughout scriptures, Lord, from cover to cover that they speak of Christ, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that uh, you would bless now as we are about to go to our uh, fellowship hall, Lord, that you would bless those who prepared the food in the time of fellowship and the, bless the food to our bodies. But as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. For we charge you this now in the presence of God. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.